recovery, and uh, I'll let him tell his story uh, to you in, in person, but uh, Daniel had sol- shoulder surgery, and it's been, uh, it's been a slow grind to get back to today as far as worship goes. I'm sure it's been a grind in other parts of life as well, but we're glad that he's back and uh, glad that he's uh, using the gifts that God's given him uh, to play the guitar, to lead and sing, to lead worship. And uh, definitely excited. I like, I've already drank like half of my water uh, working up a sweat up here playing the drums. And I love playing the drums because playing the drums for me gets me really like cranked up and ready to go for, for uh, preaching. So I, ex- I enjoy it and uh, glad to uh, be a part of that as well. And glad that you're here. Look at this lady. She's awesome. I wasn't going to say anything, but I have this little note on the top of my sermon notes. I can't tell them what it says. They have to know now. They have to know. It says, good morning with a heart. Love you. And a smiley face. Somebody got to my sermon notes. She's so awesome. So I wrote in reply, but she hasn't seen my reply. I said, it's going to be a good day with a smiley face. <laughs> Amen? All right. Glad you're here. If you're new or not normally here, uh, we're glad that you're here. And uh, we don't think that's by accident. And uh, just uh, glad you're in the house of the Lord this morning. And um, if you want to know who I picked on when I was growing up, my younger sister's over here today. Oh, she's quick to raise her hand up. Got that victim mentality going. I'm joking. It's a family joke. Relax. It's all good. But uh, we've been studying through... uh, the last several months through First and Second Peter, and uh, last week we kind of turned a corner in preparation for Resurrection Sunday that's coming up here the first weekend of April, and we're we're looking at these different snapshots of the life of Jesus. We're looking at these different uh, we're, we're to try to, to to try to build the storyline or to to, com- to compile the storyline of who Jesus is and up to the resurrection, and to do that in four weeks is kind of impossible, so we're just going to take some snapshot looks at at who Jesus is, what did he say, what did he compel us to believe, and why, and how powerful is it in our lives. Last week we looked at the idea of uh, the Father's gift, and I called it the greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? Who would say, who would agree to that? I think that John 3.16 is the greatest verse in, the, in all of the pages of Scripture, we dove into that. We looked at the whole chapter, really, but kind of focused on that verse as part of a conversation with him and Nicodemus in a late-night sit-down. They looked at that verse, and, and, or they didn't look at that verse, but Jesus shared these truths with Nicodemus that, that God is the greatest authority. For God so loved the world the greatest authority with the greatest motive, love. God is motivated in all that He does, in all that He says, in all that He teaches, in every way that He changes you, believer, in every way that He has changed me, even in the discipline, even in the difficult things, even in the trials, tribulations that we've gone through or that we will go through. Know this for sure. Mark it in your Bible. Write it down. Get a tattoo. Whatever. That God is motivated on your behalf and on His glory, because of His glory, He's motivated because of love. 
So it's the greatest motivation there is. He doesn't motivate us out of guilt. He doesn't motivate us out of shame. He doesn't motivate us out of uh, temptation. Those are works of the enemy. He motivates his people out of love. And even in the difficult things, he's motivated out of love. And he does that by giving us the greatest gift, Jesus, with the greatest welcome. That's the part for God so loved the world that whoever is the greatest welcome. It's the widest, broadest reach that God has. Whoever believes in him, the greatest escape, and the greatest deliverance should not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest possession that you could obtain, the greatest possession that you have to share with other people is a message of eternity. Nobody gets out of here alive. We're all waiting our turn. You have an invisible number. You have an invisible date with eternity. And that date can be the most fearful thing, and it is for most people on this globe. Death scares them to death. If I can borrow a phrase, <laughs> give you a little uh, Yogi Berra theology. Death scares people to death. They don't know what to do. They they're, they're, they're fearful. It grips their lives. It grips every decision that they make, every turn that they make, every, every direction that they take. It grips them, and they're scared to death. They don't know what to do. They fight, fight, fight. They're not going to beat it. I'm not going to beat it. You know, I'm a couple months from 50. I'm almost at the top of the hill. I tell people that when I get to the top of the hill, I'm cutting the airlines and rolling down the other side. You're not going to beat it. But we have the greatest possession that any person can have as a Christ follower. We have eternity. We have eternity because of who Jesus is. It's not up to our efforts. It's not up to how hard I work or how good you are. It's up to Jesus, and he offers that gift freely. Offers that gift freely. So that's why I think it's the greatest verse in the Bible. This week, that was just a little setup if you weren't here. This week we're going to look at sh- sna- <coughs> excuse me, snapshot number two. Snapshot number one, the Father's loving gift. Snapshot number two, Jesus' unexpected miracle. The story that we're going to look at today is a passage that's full of these type of description, uh, this type of descriptive language. It's full of fear. It's full of hope. It's full of confusion. There's dread. There's expectation. There's disappointment. There's grief. There's sorrow. There's joy. There's excitement. And you think, with all of these emotions flowing through all of these people, like how, 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 did, how does Jesus work in this story? And it's incredible. I think it's, I think it's Jesus' greatest miracle that he performed. It's a full spectrum of emotions. And they're on full display in this passage. It's a passage really where the last verse leaves us in a bit of a cliffhanger. And we're not even going to get to that verse, but I just want to give it to you ahead of time. It's a, it's a verse that puts people in a position where uh, their desires, and they acted on these desires, I think these desires, they always had them. But they well up with these desires, and the word says that they plotted to kill him. That's where some people go at the end of this story, at the end of this chapter anyway. We're not even going to get all the way that far. But that's where some people go. Some people went, what Jesus did put a target on his back. Not only his back, on other people's back as well. And that's not a bad thing. We have to get past this idea as a church that because we have a target on our back, that that's a bad thing. Or that we're a victim. 
We're not a victim. You're not a victim because you're a Christ follower. You're a conqueror. You're an overcomer, right? We're talking uh, a month ago, and Josh said, and I introduced it or put it into a sermon here a few weeks ago, that with Jesus and the Holy Spirit within us, we have an unfair advantage. I love that phrase. You have a Christ follower. You have an unfair advantage because of who Jesus is in your life and because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Know that. Believe that. Trust in that. Trust in that. Don't be a victim. We're not a victim because you're a Christian. Never. You're a conqueror and overcomer. The Bible never categorizes Christ followers as victims. What would cause someone to be so angry? What would cause somebody to be so full of hate? What would cause somebody to, to, to desire to and to take just a, a thought and a desire and to put action to those types of feelings in their heart to the point of plotting to kill somebody? Because we have to look at both sides. Let's look at what Jesus did. We're going to jump into mostly that. But keep this idea in mind. What Jesus did here, the things that he said, the actions that he took, put some people right to the edge and said, that's it, he's got to go. He's got to go. Uh, in our court system, we call that premeditated. It's premeditated on some people's behalf. Now, I will insert, not in my notes, but I will insert this also, that, <clears throat> that I don't think that Jesus was murdered from the standpoint that he uh, fought against it. I think that, and I think the Bible's very clear. We could dive into that whole other sermon. He offered his life willingly. Willingly. But on the other side of the spectrum, the people that despised him, the people that hated him, the people that, that uh, wanted his uh, upstart ministry to go away, the people that were the most affected in what they thought was a negative way by Jesus, those people, they had welling up in themselves hatred, contempt. They despised him. They couldn't stand him. And he never played the victim card. That's why it's important that we understand that. He never played the victim card. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what his purpose was. And he calls each of us as Christ followers to know that as well. And have confidence in what God's doing. Where last week was the greatest verse in the Bible, today, this week, we're going to look at the, what I think is the greatest and I guess I get the liberty to say that just because maybe I'm up here, but I think it's the greatest miracle that Jesus performed. Let's take a look at that storyline. Turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen. John chapter 11. John's going to give us, the Apostle John's going to give us this, uh, a little bit of a backdrop to, to where things are going here. A little bit of a context Now a certain man, verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus was deeply, deeply invested into this family. Deeply invested. He loved them. The Bible says this multiple times, even in just this chapter. He loved this brother and two sisters. They were great friends. And Bethany was this little community just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, a place where Lazarus, of course, and his sisters lived in this uh, little quaint kind of, uh, we would call it a suburb probably now, but a small village outside of Jerusalem. It was also the home of Simon the leper. Uh, it sat just on kind of the, the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, not too far away, just a short walk, two miles away from Jerusalem. This small town was particularly, <clears throat> this small town and particularly the home of these folks, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, this is where Jesus stayed when he came to Jerusalem. He stayed there often. It was kind of his launching pad, so to speak, when he would go into Jerusalem and minister. And, and uh, a lot of the events that we see recorded throughout the four Gospels, uh, the things that take place in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, all of that, this place, this home, these people were kind of like his support group. They were, they were the people that took care of him. They were the people that housed him. They were the people that... It was his resting place, maybe, is a good way to say it. It was definitely a place where there was a lot of interaction with friends and as friends, a place where, a town where he had performed miracles, of course, Simon the leper that I mentioned. It was a place where he had anointed, he was anointed with oil. Chapter 2, or verse 2 talks about that. It was a place where he had celebrated Passover. It's a place where he started his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in this small village was one of Jesus' closest friends outside of his relationship with his disciples. I think that the word tells us that real clearly. And a close friend that was struggling. A close friend that was sick. And when Jesus received the news of Lazarus' condition, he made perhaps one of the greatest statements in the Bible. A statement so huge that it should jump off the page at us, really. A statement so big that we can... Uh, we can view our past through the lens of this truth that Jesus is going to share. It's a statement so grand that we can overlay it in every present situation that we're in right now. You, me, every Christ follower. It's a statement so awesome that it builds hope for our future despite the things that are unknown. The truth that Jesus shares with his disciples is, is that big. And I believe that... I believe that... He, the Lord wants the three aspects, the, the three kind of time frames, our past, our present, and our future, to be impacted by this truth, by this precept. Look at verse 4. When Jesus had heard that, he said this, The sickness is not unto death. That made them probably scratch their heads. They couldn't quite get it. But he turned a corner with this truth. The sickness is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified in it. If you go through chapter 11, verse by verse, statement by statement, and we're going to kind of approach it a little bit that way, you take that truth and, and you can overlay it at the end of each piece. Somebody will say something, maybe it's full of fear, 
Maybe it's full of hope. Jesus will say something, and you can tack that truth, that precept on behind it, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's that powerful in our lives that we should ask this question. What issue is so big that God can't handle? It's rhetorical. You ask yourself that question. What do you got going on in life? What's happened to you in the past? Or what's going on currently? Or what might you be fearful of or struggling with in the future? And you just ask yourself this question. And you can answer your own question. Like I said, it's rhetorical. What is it that's so big that God can't handle? Tell me. Is there anything so big that God can't handle? Anybody have an idea? Anybody have a suggestion? I'm, a, I'm all ears. Right? Nothing. Say nothing. Nothing. nothing so big that God can't handle. And that's exactly where we go with this truth. It's literally the bedrock of following God. Is the reality that there's nothing so big that God can't handle. And God is taking these things, whatever the thing is in your past, whatever current problem, whatever fear of the future, God is working those things out. And we say often around here, God has a good, good, great plan for your life. And whatever it is, He's working it out to accomplish that good and godly plan. You can think about any story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Think about any story in the Bible and you will see this dynamic in play. There's people that are God-following people, believing in faith that God will work it out. There's God-following people believing that God is going to work out their issue. Or there's people that are denying God and denying His ability and His power to work things out in their lives. That's a difference between faith and fear. John goes on to write about this. Let's take a look. Jesus giving the strangest reaction to a dear friend being sick. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. I thought, I thought Lazarus was really sick. Did, didn't I just say that Lazarus was really sick? So Jesus, so he gets the message. So the reality is, is it kind of breaks down this way, and you can do the math. There's kind of a four-day period here. On the first day, he gets the message. Hey, Lazarus is sick. He was probably sick when the messenger came, but Lazarus is sick. So Jesus says, well, let's just stay two more days. I like it here. It's really fun. We've already paid for the condo. Right? We got, we got time here. We got time. And then we'll go. It doesn't make sense. Let me tell you what. If, if, if I was sick, those of you that are close friends with me would be coming over. You would be calling. You'd say, what can we do? How can I help? Who needs food? Our church is really big on the food. I like this idea that we're going back to... <laughs> I like the idea that we're going back to potlucks because we like food. Right? How can we get people food? It'd be a blessing with food. It's great. I'm not making fun of it. I think it's an awesome ministry. The reality is, is that people rush to people's aid when they're close friends. There's, an, there's a normal expectation in close friends 
that when your brother is down, you show up. And Jesus really throws everybody off the tracks. He says, ah, let's just hold on a second. Let's just hold on a second. Throws everybody into a skid. The disciples say in verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the... <clears throat> Whoa, am I in the right place? Yeah, he said, let's go again to Judea. And the disciples are not concerned with Lazarus at all. The disciples say in verse 8, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? You tell me. What kind of statement is that? Fear of faith. Jesus' statement about staying a couple extra days. Fear of faith. I skipped that one on the screen. I know I did. Fear of faith. Jesus telling his guys, hey, hold on a second. Is that fear of faith? You tell me. It's not a trick question. That's faith. Jesus knew what the plan was. The disciples are scared for their lives. They're scared for Jesus' life. They, hey, we've we got a ministry that's rolling here. We don't want to shut it down. We don't want to go places where it's dangerous. Heaven forbid. We don't want to go to Iraq. We don't want to go to Pakistan. Why would we go there? Why would we go to Syria? It's dangerous there. They want to kill Christians there. Right? Jesus says, hey, we're going. Verse 9. They're not 12 hours in the day, Jesus said. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But the one who walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus bringing out this contrast of perspective between faith and fear. A reminder of one of his seven I am statements out of the book of John. A reminder of I am the light of the world out of chapter 8 and, verse, and <clears throat> chapter 9. Jesus is saying that if you're living by faith, you can see by his light. And here's the reason why. The light is in you. The light is in you. See the, see the switch? He, the, the person living by faith can see. He can see the light of the world. He can see what Jesus is doing. He can follow what Jesus is doing. He can, he can join up. We say in the Experiencing God study, he can join God's work because he can see clearly. But he who does not have, what does it say? He who stumbles can't see because the light's not in him the light's in him not in him for christ followers we have the light in us it opens us up we have revelation of who christ is we understand and we can follow despite the circumstances john goes on to say in verse 11 these things he said after <clears throat> after that he said to them our friend lazarus sleeps but I go that I might wake him up. You could insert that, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Verse 12, Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Hey, Lazarus is dead. I had a friend that used to say, Graveyard dead. He's cold on the slab, right? No more heartbeat. Dead, dead, dead. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Man, that must have been a mind-bender for them. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Insert that verse section out of from above, that the Son of God may be glorified. 
Nevertheless, let's go to him. I thought you said he was dead. No, we're still going to go. Okay? It, it must have been a, a fun ride following Jesus. Verse 16, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's also go that we may die with him. E. There's always a freshman in every crowd. Right? Isn't that the way? Thomas comes across like he's in ninth grade following a bunch of seniors around school. Ah, let's go. Jesus school. Jesus school with Lazarus. Jesus school with you. Jesus school with your neighbor. Jesus school with the lady that you meet at the gas station. Jesus' goal for the couple with the kids that you're behind when you're standing in line at Walmart or Costco. Jesus' goal is to wake people up. Jesus' goal is to bring life back to people. Now this miracle is going to, I'm going to give you the spoiler. He's going to bring physical life back to Lazarus. But it's a picture of Jesus waking people up. The call for today is that we're awoken. Is that right even a word? Awakened? Is that even a word? I got all my English crowd over here, so I'll just talk over here. But the, the bottom line is Jesus is to wake us up. He wants to wake people up spiritually. Spiritually is his goal. Draw them out a life of fear and frustration into a life of faith and peace. He wants that for his disciples, his friends. And he wants that for us as well. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. There's your four-day marker. There's an interesting like, cultural piece about um, Israel in the first century. Four days. Uh, the, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that everybody there believed this, but it was, it was kind of one of those things. It was kind of like a, I don't know, maybe we would call it an urban legend today, but a wives' tale, maybe, myth. I don't know, but it was kind of somewhat commonly thought of in the first century in that day that the spirit of a person would kind of hover and be in close proximity around the body until the body was so decomposed then the spirit would leave. That's kind of the, the urban legend, if you call it. So we get to day four. We get to day four, and you can imagine what the body condition was for Lazarus. Not good. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Verse 20 says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Faith or fear? But even now, even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Faith or fear? Interesting switch for Martha, right? And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother's going to rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Faith or fear? Now this one is a bit of a trick question. Actually, it's great, uh, it's great theology for that day. 
And Jesus is trying to, to broaden her horizons of understanding, broaden our horizons of understanding. Jesus said to her this, perhaps one of the greatest pieces of literature on the planet, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not about what Lazarus' condition is. It's not about that. At that point, they didn't know what was going to happen. I gave you guys a spoiler alert. You've probably read this passage a dozen times or more. So you kind of know where the story's going anyway. But she had no clue. She had no clue. And, and, and she was working with the information that she had. And Jesus now gives her this monster download of truth when he says, hey, hey, it's not about your brother. It's not even about the last day. He said, it's about me. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who come into this world. Kind of repeating Peter's phrase. His testimony of who Jesus is. But this statement about the being the resurrection and the life, it completely blows everybody out of the water. That eternal life is his to give to any who lives and believes in him. That's what he says. He who it's for any who lives and believes in me. Followed by the ultimate faith or fear question that he poses to Martha. He says, hey, do you believe that this is true? Are you willing to understand what I'm saying? And Martha, are you willing in a difficult time of life are you willing to believe that this is true? In the midst of your pain and your grief, in the midst of your disappointment and frustration, are you willing to believe that this is true? Are you willing to believe that I am who I say that I am? Same question rings true in our ears. If you think back to the point where this was the question for you. This was the point of decision for you. When you were very first presented with the gospel, when you very heard, first heard about who Jesus is, and you were presented with the gospel of Jesus, did it ring in your ears like I'm sure that it rang in Martha's? Do you believe that Jesus is the answer to life's most troubling question? What happens when we die? What happens after a loved one dies? Those are some of the most troubling, difficult, perplexing times to be in. They can also be, they can also be, and I believe this is a shift that Jesus is, is bringing to the equation. They can also be some of the most comforting in the midst of trials, comforting times. They can be some of the most therapeutic times. They can be some of the most intimate times that we can have with the Lord is in the midst of great grief. 
And let's be honest. Peel back the layer a little bit. We've all faced a little grief. Maybe some of us have faced more than a little grief. We've all had difficulties to some degree or another. And I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. And I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't hurt. Grief, they say, is like the ocean tide. Sometimes it's far off and distant. And it seems like, man, that just seems like a long time ago. There's other times that grief just keeps slapping you in the face. And it's just bam, 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 bam. And it's not easy. And we all face these questions. What happens after we die? Or what happens after a loved one dies? When she had heard these, when she had said these things, talking about Martha, she went on her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she was going to the tomb to weep there. A little bit of uh, cultural context. We don't have this going on, but, but when somebody passed away, people would come from all over the place just to mourn with the grieving family. People you didn't know, people that you did know, but there's just, the people would just show, it was just culturally different. Culturally different. We have, we have cultural you know, uh, idiosyncrasies even here. Things are, the, we, ha, we conduct funerals and, and, and mourn here differently here than, than where Tammy grew up back east. Or it's different here than even uh, where Barry and, and, uh, works across the river over in Inchileum. Or it can be different here than up in Canada. Or it can be here different than down in the south, Right? In that day, what was culturally normal was is that people would just kind of show up when they heard somebody pass away. They would just show up just to grieve. Uh, and it was a loud procession, so to speak. It was a loud event. It wasn't quiet. There wasn't organ playing in the background, you know. Jonathan up there playing something nice, soft and easy and, and, and a, a somber moment. No, it was loud and they, they wailed in grief for the family. But here in this situation, Mary gets up quickly, heads out to meet Jesus where he was. Verse 32 says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, sounds like uh, the sisters were reading off the same sheet of music. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. No doubt they have talked about this. No doubt in their grief, they just said, Man, if Jesus just would have been here, if he just would have gotten here sooner, Maybe there was a chance for Lazarus. Maybe there's a chance that he would have healed him. We've seen him heal before. We've seen him do this before. Why didn't he make it? Why didn't he come when we really needed him to come? Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. 
than the Jews said. See how he loves him. See how he loved him. Mary and Martha are so disappointed. So disappointed. And you see the human side of Jesus coming out in the story. You see his, you see his anguish. You see his, his uh, grief. You see his love for his brother who has passed on, his spiritual brother, a dear friend. You see that side of Jesus come out. They'd seen him do the miracles. They sat with him, had him and his friends in their home. Their pain and their grief was so hard to bear. And now it was too late to do anything about it. Even though they knew and had, and had, and had believed that Jesus was exactly who J Peter confessed that he was. He was the Son of God. Yet in their minds, in that time and in that moment, there was nothing, nothing that could be done. The reality is, is that Jesus joins them in that moment of pain and grief. Verse 34 says that he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And obviously in 35 it says Jesus wept. Jesus is identifying with their pain. In the midst of the greatest miracle that Jesus will perform, he, he performs that miracle. It was done as he mourned the loss of a friend. We cannot take that out of context. He is in the midst of mourning loss, grieving himself. Yeah, he performs his greatest miracle. The great news for you and I is, is that whatever we think we're going to go through, we don't go through it alone. That's great news. That's comforting news. It's love and compassion from Jesus. Of course, there's also critics that are always out there. Those uh, armchair quarterbacks. This might take a few of you back. They're kind of like, a, you guys know who Statler and Waldorf are? It, anybody know who Statler? Oh. Waldorf or Salad. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to date myself right here with a statement. There was very few cartoons that we had to watch when I was a kid, if you can believe it. The reality is we had three, three channels of TV. Uh, two of them was only if the weather was good. But in the evenings, there was always a show on called The Muppets. Now, we, now in my jogging memories, older people, you with me with The Muppets? Some people are like, where is he going with this? My two favorite characters on The Muppets were these two old cronies that sat up in the balcony, and their names were... Statler and Waldorf. And they were always poking fun at whatever was going up on the stage. They were always criticizing. They were always questioning, you know, what Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog and all the rest of the characters were doing. And they sat up there, you know, and carried on. The reality is, is that they played that, they played that role to a T. They were the critics. They were the armchair quarterbacks. They were the detractors that perpetuate doubt instead of faith in Jesus, now I'm talking about the people that are going to talk next. When they ask questions like, how in the world could he overcome the impossible? How could he overcome death? Verse 37 says, and some of them, always those 
you know, anonymous people in the crowd. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You know, it, it, they're joining with the crowd of fear and doubt. You know, if he would have been here like two days earlier, he could have done something about it. But now, too late, right? They perpetuate those voices that are in our lives that perpetuate fear and doubt and uncertainty about who God is. They need to go. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of these people who are standing by, say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, <clears throat> and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Cut him loose. It's one of the greatest miracles I believe that Jesus performed. It's a picture into what's going to happen shortly in the storyline of, of Jesus himself. But in this powerful moment, in this wonderful display of God's glory and God's power, Jesus performs the greatest miracle in the midst of perhaps life's toughest situation. And he does this in the midst of a cancel culture. Just like the culture we're in. Nothing's changed a couple thousand years, even more than that. You can go back. We were talking about this before the service. You can go back to really, you know, the beginning of mankind and see a cancel culture, if you will, if you look for it. You can see a cancel culture type thing in display, on display. Right? And Jesus puts himself with this miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus puts himself, and he puts Lazarus in danger in a sense. If you read on in chapter 12, you're going to see how the Jews that are plotting against Jesus, the same people that are, that are, are now uh, full-blown uh, hatred mode against Jesus, they have that same view towards Lazarus. If we can, you know, cancel Lazarus out, then cancel Jesus out, we can get back to life as normal, doing our thing, you know, waiting for the Messiah, hoping that he'll come and rescue us from Rome, hoping that he'll take over in a physical way, hoping that he'll make things, all things right as we see right. That was the cancel culture that they had to deal with. And Jesus puts himself in danger, and he does it because of this miracle. 
He does it because of this proclamation that, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. You want to see it on display? Come on out. Lazarus, come forth. Let's go. We're going to show the people standing here. In fact, we're going to demonstrate for the world, for generations to come, that I am exactly who I say I am. And all that I do and all that I say is so that people will give God the glory. There's three interesting questions. There's actually four questions that Jesus asked in this chapter, but the three that I want to highlight is the one where he, on the heels of saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And while in the midst of grief, Jesus asked, where have you laid him? So do you believe, where have you laid him? Then he asked another question to Martha. He said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Do you believe, where have you laid him? Did I not say, by way of reminder, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We can take those three questions and insert them into any tough situation that we will ever face. Any difficult hour that you're going to live through from today forward. Maybe you're in that difficult hour. Maybe this is like perfect for today. You can go home and just get on your knees before the Lord and say, you know, hey, do, am I believe God, help me to believe what you're saying is true. That you hold the power over life and death. And you offer that free gift to anybody who would believe. I simply need to believe. Maybe you've not believed. Do you believe this? Or maybe it's where a question of where have you laid him? Maybe there's something in our lives that we're holding back from Jesus. Something that's hidden away. Something that's got a big barrier in front of it. Maybe there's an issue in, in our lives that we're just not ready to open that door to God yet in our lives. But that issue, that problem, that sin, that struggle, that relationship that we don't want God to, to be in charge of, that uh, uh, job that we're a little uncertain about, but we're holding on to it, and we, we know that God's calling us for something different, something better. Whatever it is that's holding us back from embracing who Jesus is, whatever's hiding behind your stone, that's the one I want to get to. Whatever closet's locked in your life, whatever, whatever, Jesus is asking you, and he's asking me, where's it at? Where's it at? Because he wants to do a, that type of miracle in your life. Whatever's dead that you think is not recoverable, God wants to recover for you. Sometimes we just don't want to show. Then the third one, by way of reminder, did I not say that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is always taking people to the edge of the cliff of whether they're willing to trust him or not. That's a part of following Christ. Part of following Christ 
is standing on the edge of the cliff when life seems dangerous. I'm not talking about in foolishness. I'm talking in reality, are we trusting Him? Are we trusting Him? Are we trust? Do we believe, He says? Do you believe that you're going to see the glory of God? If not in this life, in the next. Let's be real with one another. Not everything that we pray about, we're going to see come to fruition in this life. Not everything that we hoped and dreamed about are we going to see in this life. Not everyone that we hope and dream and pray for or mourn for will we see in this life. Are we willing to trust in Christ's glory and in His glory and His promises of eternity to see those things? They're awesome. They're wonderful. We should live with anticipation in those things. We should live with anticipation of those reunions. We should live with anticipation of spending eternity with passed on loved ones. That's why we grieve with hope, not without. Not like the world. The world doesn't have hope. They think that once the ticker stops, it's over. We share the message of hope in a hurting culture. We, share, we, we possess the message of eternity in a culture that doesn't know or has misguided ideas. As we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, and the worship team can come on up, as we draw a little closer... Resurrection Sunday and the events of the cross. These same questions are asked of us as well. Do we have joy believing that Jesus is who he says he is? Do we put Jesus in front of our problems or our dilemma, or do we hide them away? And third, are we reminded in the midst of the situation that God's glory is on full display. Even if it's tough, even if it's a difficult moment, God's glory is on full display in your life, Christ follower. It's an awesome thing. I get excited. I see the changes that are going on. I see the excitement that's going on. I see there's, there's, there's a buzz uh, uh, here like never before, at least since we've been here. And those are great things. Know this, God's glory is on display in your life. Keep that forefront in our minds. He's doing awesome things. Sometimes we don't always see Him. Sometimes we're in the midst of it. Wait, wait, be patient, be patient. His glory will be on full display out in front of you. Let's worship the Lord together.